Okay, so we are uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tonight, if you want to turn there. And uh, that's all we're going to get to tonight, and um, we'll be doing well if we get, get through that. It's a very dense chapter. A lot of, uh, if you guys like barbecue, there's a lot of meat in here. And um, you might need toothpicks when you're, out, when you're done, so... But seriously, uh, we are uh, working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, I have to say I'm, I'm really enjoying it. This is one of my favorite books. There's so many truth nuggets in there and so many convicting things in there, and um, very relevant, I think, to the times that we're living in as we're looking at uh, what the Apostle Paul would deem a carnal church meaning that this church looks more like the world than it does like heaven. And so Paul is dealing with a bunch of issues within the church, and we're in a, a particular section where this, this phrase keeps coming up, now concerning. He says that, now concerning. And, and when he says that, that means that he's answering questions that they were asking him. So the the first part of the book, we were looking at how he was uh, directly addressing sin issues within the church, sexual immorality, uh, division, strife, envy, um, segregation uh, between different um, teachers and pastors. They were dividing over that. And, and then he starts getting into the questions. And the questions um, start in chapter 7 where... He says now concerning, he says that, so he's answering a question, and it has to do with marriage, divorce, and singleness. And so as he starts to tackle those issues, the issues that they had in the church, and he um, goes on in chapter 8, and he talks about Christian liberty, and he's going to continue with that tonight. But basically, he's dealing with the fact that as Christians, we have been set free. Those who are in Christ have been set free. And there's this amazing liberty because it's not based on works. It's based on grace. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus did. So it's easy to get confused between salvation and works and sanctification and works. So when it comes to salvation, works don't play a part into our salvation. Why? Because it's all of what He has done and not what we do. So it's by faith that we are saved. It's not by works. But once we are saved, works do matter in the sense that we have become new people inside, which should manifest itself outside. So there's a change that takes place. And that change then will dictate the actions of our life. So the actions come from us being new creations in Christ. And our new creation being is a being that desires to please Christ, to know Christ, to grow in Christ, 
to honor Christ. And that those are the characteristics of being a new believer in Christ. So there can, like the Corinthians, there can be uh, some confusion as then, so now that I'm saved and I have all this freedom and it's not by works, then does it really matter what I do? So in a sense, that's one of the aspects that he's dealing with is Christian liberty. The liberty, the freedom that we have to do certain things that don't affect our salvation. As he's talking about this, he's dealing with the particular issue with eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. So there were Christians that were rightly saying that we can eat the meat because it was sacrificed to idols, meaning it was dedicated to an idol. It was used in idol worship. So they brought an animal and they sacrificed the animal and they put the animal on an altar and they gave part of that animal to the God that they're worshiping. They gave part of that animal to the person that brought the animal and then part of the animal to the priest. And so there was some of that meat that was for sale in the marketplace. And the Christians in Corinth were saying, well, we're going to buy that meat because it costs less. And it doesn't matter if it's sacrificed to idols because idols aren't anything. They're not real. Those little statues and those little artifacts that they put up and those things, they're not even real. So it doesn't matter. And in chapter 8, Paul says, knowledge, the fact that you know that and that you're right about that puffs up, but love edifies. So what he was saying is, is it worth it to eat that meat, although you have the liberty to do that, if it means that there's going to be somebody that is very weak in their conscience that if they see you eating that meat, it's going to really bother them. It's going to mess them up. It's going to mess their walk with God up. And so he's saying it's better not to eat that meat if it's going to mess somebody up, even though you know that it's not a real thing and these idols aren't real. So he begins to talk about these liberties and the best way to use the liberties, the best way to use our freedom and he says that in a way where we should use them in consideration of our brothers and sisters in Christ because we don't want them and their faith and their walk with God to be hurt and damaged because we're exercising our liberty and not caring about them. So as he discusses that, he gets into chapter 9. It's very interesting. He begins to talk about his time in Corinth. He spent 18 months there. He established the church there. And he didn't take money for that from the Corinthian church. He could have. He is pointing to scriptures, to examples, to the law, and all. he said, I had a right to receive money from my work there, but I didn't. And the reason was is because he didn't want to use his right to receive money for his work in the gospel because he knew in Corinth that might stumble somebody. They might say, well, they're in that for the money. Paul's just there to rip you off. He's just there for the money. So he'd rather 
just say, well, I'm going to trust in the Lord and I'll boast in the Lord's provision for me. And I'm not going to ask you for money. So he didn't, and God provided, of course. But he was, he was using that as an example to say, look, this is how I'm using my liberty. This is how I use my freedom. And he continues that discussion into chapter 10. So we see that this idea is very, very crucial and very important that we understand that our walk with God is not isolated and solo, but it's public and communal. In other words, my choices are going to affect you. And your choices are going to affect me and those around you. And we can't say, I have the liberty to do something without considering how our actions may affect another person, especially another believer, but also an unbeliever. So when we make choices about what Paul said in Romans 14, doubt, doubtful things, or things that are sort of gray matter issues, or issues that aren't really clearly spelled out in the Scripture, then, then how do we exercise our choices in those things. And one way to do it, which is the wrong way, is to say, how much can I get away with where I'm not actually crossing the line of sin? The other way is to say, what can I do to please the Lord in all that I do? And if we begin to understand that's how we make our choices, that's how we walk with the Lord. That's how we use our liberty is what I'm going to do. How is this going to please the Lord? When we live like that, then we know that those other things that will come with it will be having a good effect on other people. So if we walk to please the Lord vertically, we will be a blessing horizontally. Our walk with God is before Him. And that walk that we have before God will affect other people. So if you just think about that, that principle that He's laying down, and you think about many of the things that are going on in churches and many of the things that have been exposed on TV and documentaries about these these liberties that people are using, and you see how many people are being stumbled by them, you start to realize, man, this is, this is really a big deal. So in chapter 10, as we begin this study, he continues with that, but notice right before that in, in verse 27, actually let's go to verse 26, in regards to using our liberties and not just doing all the things that we can do, even though if it, it may impact somebody else's walk. He says, therefore, I run not with uncertainty, thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but instead I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified." 
So in, in other words, he's saying, I have to work at denying my carnal fleshly desires. He's suggesting that that's not a passive thing, but it's an active thing, where he is actively resisting and fighting against the desires of his flesh. And he gives a reason, and he says that he doesn't want to be disqualified for what God has called him to do. So that goes right into the next verse when it says, moreover, that's how you know it's, it's connected. That's not a good chapter break there. He's continuing with that same thought. He says, moreover, moreover brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So what is he doing now? Now he's going back to the Old Testament, to the Jews that he was talking to. He's talking to them about their fathers, their founding fathers, so to speak. And he's saying, go back and look what happened there. Understand the privilege that they had because of their relationship with God. And with that privilege, get this, comes responsibility. That's what the whole chapter is about. So the blessings that you have, if you're a believer here tonight, he is saying there's a responsibility. The Bible says he who has given much, much is required. We've been bought with a price. We're no longer our own. So we're to glorify God in our body and our spirit. So there's a responsibility for a believer who has treasures in heaven, who has a relationship with God, whose sins have been washed away, who have, have been entrusted with the gospel, who have been entrusted with the message of salvation. So there's a responsibility. So what must that responsibility be like? How heavy of a responsibility do you think that is if Jesus died on the cross for us and gave us this life in Jesus and then he gives us the responsibility to carry on the work of Jesus at the cross. What was involved with Jesus giving his life for us? It was sacrifice. What is a steward of the things of God to do? They're to sacrifice their life, their rights, their personal privileges and liberties for the sake of God first and the concern of others. Privilege and responsibility. The children of Israel, boy, they had a privilege. They were God's chosen people. What did he choose them for? He chose them to be a people that he would have a relationship with so that all the other nations would know the one true God. And so as you go through the Old Testament, you see the ceremonies, you see the dedications, you see the feasts, you see the temple, you see the prophets, you 
see the patriarchs, you see the working of God through miracles, you see the giving of the Ten Commandments. They were stewards over that. What kind of responsibility was that for them? In a sense, the whole world was dependent on knowing God through how God worked in their life. So he's going back to that and see, he's saying in regards to the application of what's going on and using our liberties, our freedom, we have to think about the responsibility that we have because of the great privilege that we have. So the example is the children of Israel. He wants us to understand. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. And he, he mentions a couple things in, in uh, verse 1 that they were under the cloud and they passed through the sea. So what is that? That is God's miraculous protection and provision and direction. God wasn't doing that for anybody else. He was doing that for the Jews. So the, the Jews, it speaks about passing through the sea. What's that? He's talking about how God led the children of Israel miraculously through the Red Sea. He parted it. He walled it up so they could pass through two to three million people. He made it so that they had to depend on him. He made it so that he had a plan for them. And because he had a plan for them, he was going to work that plan out and he was going to show them his power, his love, his care for them so that they would obey him and be dependent on him and use the stewardship responsibly that they had, that God called them to be these people that all the nations of the world would know God through them. He talks about this cloud. What was this cloud? The cloud was used by God to, to direct them. They didn't know where to go. If you put yourself in their position at that time, they had been in slavery for 400 years. They didn't develop a leadership, a administration, a military, agriculture, um, transportation. They didn't, I mean, they just ran for their lives. One day, they were slaves in Egypt. The next day, they are miraculously in the middle of the desert. Two to three million people. No infrastructure. But what did they have? They had the Lord. The God was demonstrating to them that that was all that they needed. And God was teaching them as they went through the wilderness. And mind you, the, if you have a, like I did for a long time, a, a vision of the wilderness being like, I don't know, like being in the woods and trees and streams and that, it's, not, it's the desert. It's different. So they, why did God take them into the wilderness because God wanted to teach them that it didn't matter if they were slaves, if they were delivered from slavery, if they were in the wilderness or they were in the abundant promised land. 
the main thing always had to be the same, that they weren't to change, especially when things got easier and more comfortable. They weren't to live in a different way, but they were to have the same passion for God and keeping God first in every situation. So that was what he was teaching them, that in any situation... It's always the same thing. Their joy is always going to come from the Lord, not from their stuff. Their protection is always going to come from the Lord, not from their armies. Their food was always going to come from the Lord, even though they had crops and things like that. So in every situation, it just had to be the Lord. But that, that's a, a, an important lesson for us. That if we're down on our luck now, God is our provider. God is our everything. And if you're down on your luck, it's more clear that he is. But if you're the opposite of down on your luck, say you're up on your luck. I don't know if that's a term. But if you're up on your luck, that's just a figure of speech, though. I know luck's not, we don't go by luck, but just work with me. So if you're living high in the hog, the tendency is then to not think as much about your need for God. So he was teaching the children of Israel, and they needed this lesson. They needed it desperately. Because they, like us, are so conditioned to walk with God in a way that corresponds with where we are in life. And it could be to the one extreme to where we can get so discouraged and hopeless because we're struggling could be the other end where we just forget about God because things are so good and it just doesn't feel like we need Him. So the children of Israel had such a high calling that God had to work miraculously to show His power and ability and willingness to them. Remember before the Red Sea was the ten plagues? And so they should have been able to carry all of that, the ten plagues and... The, going through the Red Sea to carry it forward with them in a way that they would understand that the way God worked there means that He has a plan for us and He's going to continue to work that plan out to completion. He was teaching them not to base their lives on how things look, but on what God says. He was teaching them to live by faith. And so Paul in our example, is telling the believers at Corinth, look what God was doing with the children of Israel and use that as an example to understand what you're to do now. Now, that's important to know because the Old Testament is not something that gets unhitched at the New Testament. And there are many people, there's um, Andy Stanley wrote a book, I think it's called Unhitched, but it, it talks about we, don't, we shouldn't deal with the Old Testament anymore. We shouldn't, that, that has no revel, relevance for today, but the Old Testament explains the New Testament. If we just had the, Old Test, or the New Testament, we wouldn't understand really 
all the things that were going on, it actually seemed pretty weird. But the Old Testament, if you don't have the New Testament, the Old Testament would seem pretty weird too because there would be no purpose and fulfillment because the fulfillment of the things in the Old Testament was in the New Testament. But this just shows you how crucial the Old Testament is. I would say it's vital to our understanding of God. So in verse 2 it says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. They're baptized into Moses. What does that mean? That means that when they all came out of Egypt through the Red Sea and were on the other side of the Red Sea, and the Red Sea closed in, they looked back and there was just Red Sea back there, and then they had the wilderness in front of them, and they're all in this together. That's what it means they're all baptized into Moses. It means that, hey, look, this whole nation of people, three, two to three million people, as they stood there on the other side of the Red Sea, they would say, we're all in this together. They weren't individuals. They, they couldn't make it on their own. They needed each other, and they needed God. And so this, that's a very good example of, of how the body of Christ is. We all need each other, and we all need God. So he's saying that they all, they, they all drank of this spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So this is speaking of the actual physical provision that they had. So that, that provision found itself in a rock. And this is when the children of Israel were in the desert. And like I said, they didn't have the ability to get their own water. It's very difficult to get water in the desert. But God had a provision that they didn't know about. It was a rock. And there's water in the rock. Who would have known? But this rock then had spiritual implications. So the rock was the actual physical thing, but it had spiritual implications because that rock was a picture of Christ and his provision. And that water that came out of the rock was a picture of God's cleansing of believers when he was struck on the cross. It says that this rock followed them around. So what does that, that mean? We're not really sure. There's a rabbinic tradition that the rock actually showed up wherever they were. And maybe Paul is alluding to that tradition. Or it could have been just that God provided and put a rock wherever they were going to be. God was leading them and directing them. We're not really sure, but the, the point is that God had provision for them wherever they went. That they didn't have to be desperate or feel like they're on their own anymore. They didn't have to feel like, well, we followed him and look where that got us. Look where God's leading has ended up. 
Moses, in, on one occasion, you may recall, he was frustrated with the children of Israel. They were complaining. They complained a lot. We're going to see that a little more. They complained a lot. And Moses just couldn't handle it anymore. And out of frustration, he hit the rock twice. He was just supposed, supposed to speak to the rock. And water came out because God was still going to provide for them. But Moses was, because of that, not able to go into the promised land. Because he messed up, as we see here, he messed up this picture, this illustration. The rock was an illustration of Jesus. And the smiting of the rock that brought forth water was an illustration of Jesus on the cross washing us of our sins. And he was only to be smitten once or hit once. So they, Moses messed up the picture out of frustration and, and anger. He hit it twice. And it just to think that there would have to be an atonement after the atonement. This was the problem. And this, there are some who believe that there is a continual atonement that has to be made now. Catholics be, believe that. That when you take the bread and the cup in communion, that it's a, a continual atonement that Christ is making. And the whole point is that there is one atonement, and it was finished at the cross. That was it. There's not a continual atonement. It was made at the cross, and that's it. So in verse 5, he says, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So this is really sad to me. This speaks of those who start well, but don't finish well. This speaks of those who give up. This speaks of those who have had great privilege in the Lord, have heard many things about the Lord, have watched people serve the Lord, and yet they get to certain places and they stop. They go so far and they retreat. And it says that the majority of those who actually saw the ten plagues saw Moses lead the children of Israel through the water and then actually go into the wilderness and have provision made for them, knowing that the wilderness was just a temporary time to learn and to teach them, but they are eventually going to go into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, but they didn't make it. Why didn't they make it? Well, they complained a lot on the way, but when they, they made it to the, to the finish line, the edge of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea, they made it. And as they're at the edge of Kadesh Barnea, they have seen God provide and have understood miracles and have experienced God in a way that, that nobody has, but there's one thing that they sent spies into the promised land. And these spies, they, they went in the promised land, the land of Cana, the land flowing with milk and honey, this land of, of fruit and this land where um, God was going to be their God and they would begin to display the goodness of God through how God worked in their life. 
as they got there, they saw who was in the promised land. And who was in the promised land? Big people. Giants. Scary people. The, there were enemies there. There were enemies in the, in the promised land. So that's very interesting, isn't it? Do you, sometimes you think, well, the promised land is going to be like being on vacation. The promised land is going to be like an all-inclusive in Cancun or Hawaii or something like that. You just lay around and people come and put grapes in your mouth. <laughs> but what was the promised land? The promised land was filled with enemies. The promised land was filled with battles, filled with fights, filled with warfare. But you know, you know, in all of those cases, you know what God said? He said, I'll do all the fighting for you. You just listen to me. So all of that faith building, all that leading and God demonstrating His goodness, it ended because of fear. Because their faith failed them when they needed it the most. Their faith hadn't developed, and that's what is happening to every one of us now, is God is developing our faith for whatever is next. If we skip that, if we shrink back, if we substitute something for our faith, and that is not developed, we will not be prepared for what's next in life. God is developing our faith now for what's next. And so they, they got there and the 10 spies went in and they said, we can't do it. Why? The enemies are too big. Two spies came back and they said, the enemies are very big, but we can do it. Our God's bigger. And what ended up happening is they didn't go in and they stayed in the wilderness and went in circles for 40 years until they died out and then they went in, the next generation. So what does that tell us? It tells us that it is possible to be an actual born-again believer and live such a terrible life, a dusty, circular life lacking purpose and meaning and the one reason why is because we won't live by faith. Because we won't surrender our will to God's will. Because although we have this amazing God who's done amazing things, that we won't trust Him. And we're just going to do our own thing. That's not a life we want to live. The life that we live is to be a life that we live by faith. Trusting in God. And that is the life of abundance. It's possible that many people shrink back because to move forward in faith means that there is spiritual warfare there. Many people get a taste of the spiritual warfare and they say, I don't want to do that. I'd rather live in a dry, dusty land than actually go and possess the fullness of all the things that God has for me because I don't want to go through those things. But see, there's a whole nother trial to live by when one is resisting and rebelling against God not living in faith. And that's the trial of being surrendered to one's own will. 
and not experiencing the goodness and the power and the love of God in one's life. But see, being in the promised land is actually the safest place to be. Why? That's where God's fighting for us. That's where we experience the miraculous. That's where we experience God working and moving. It's when we go in by faith and we see God conquering the enemies. And though, like Psalm 23 says, even though we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with us. And so we fear not. We walk by faith. We don't hide our faith. We don't shrink down in our faith. We're not embarrassed by our faith. But we walk in faith. And we watch God work in our faith. So that's why in verse 5 it says, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And that is so true today. There are so many in my experience as a Christian and as a pastor, there are so many bodies scattered in the wilderness, it's not even funny. And that makes me sad. It gives me a continual broken heart about that. Because to know what God has for somebody and to see someone not go forward into the things that God has for them, but instead stay in the wilderness and just watch a person wither in their lack of faith and their selfishness is the saddest thing. So these bodies were all scattered, but he he goes on and and he says, in verse 6, he says, Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. So what does that mean? It's referring to Numbers 11. You might want to jot that down, but there came a, a time where God's provision for them wasn't enough. Says temptation will all go through. Is there something else? Is there more? It's the same temptation uh, Satan gave to Eve. God's holding something back. There's something better. If you just do your own thing, your life's there's this whole world out there. The world is your oyster. And God doesn't want you to have that. God just wants you to have a, a boring, stale, dry life. And Satan comes and whispers, and he says, look at all of this. Look at all that you can have. Same temptation that he tried to give to Jesus. But the, the children of Israel, at, in uh, this particular verse in Numbers chapter 11, I'd encourage you to read that um, later on. But they, they basically got sick of the manna. So in a way, you can kind of understand that. The manna was uh, God's food provision for them. And it, it just showed up every day. And it was the perfect balance of everything that a human body would need to be fully healthy and nothing extra and nothing less. 
imagine if you could find that recipe and start putting it out in the health food stores and stuff. But it sustained them for 40 years. This manna, and, and manna means what is it? And it just showed up. And they had to trust God because they, they couldn't save it to the next day. They were not allowed to do that. Why did God not allow them to save a little? Because he wanted them to trust him. Right? So all of us, I'm sure if we go home, our fridges are looking pretty good. But they didn't have that. They had to depend on God to, for that little cake to show up. And if it didn't show up, they would have all died. But it did show up, and it kept showing up. And it kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up until finally they said, we don't want it to keep sh uh, showing up. We want meat. Give me meat. We want meat. They begged for meat. And you know what? God gave them meat. But in Psalm 106.15, it says that God gave them their desires, but he added leanness to their soul. In other words, they had meat. Quail came. They had so much meat, they were eating it was coming out of their nose. The only time that's ever happened to me is I'm drinking soda and somebody makes me laugh. I've never eaten so much where it's coming out of my nose. But they, they, they were going for it. And it was, it was coming out of their nose. It, they were sick with it. But the, all that meat that they had inside, they were actually empty. So they were full on the outside, but empty on the inside. And that was the whole point. That's what, that's what is being said here, that in verse 6, it, they, they become examples to the intent that they should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Why, why was that evil thing to lust after the meat? It's because they wanted something that wasn't God's will. And they were not content. And when we start to get discontented with what God is doing in our life, we are right on the verge of idolatry, which leads to sin. The Bible says that God has come to give us life and that more abundantly. There's a fullness that God gives to the believer, a satisfaction that God gives to the believer. But when we start to complain, we start to lust after things that our people in the world have, and we say, what a bummer being a Christian. Look at all these people, all these people enjoying the fruits of life and look at me when you start saying that when you start being discontent in your heart and start complaining in your heart you're on your way to this evil and that evil is then you know what if God's not going to do it I'm going to make it happen in my own life I'm going to satisfy myself I'm going to do it for my own self and that's what they did so complaining against God, they weren't satisfied with what God had given them and they weren't trusting in God. And even though the manna may have been something that wasn't the most exciting thing for them, 
It was God's will for them. And it was perfect. And there was a purpose for them having that. So in verse 7, then, it says, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. So that's referring to Exodus chapter 32, another good chapter to read tonight. So this is when the children of Israel were in their camp, and Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. As Moses is up there, they're looking around and said, hey, Moses isn't here anymore, so we need something to worship. Hey, if you have earrings, take them off. Take all your earrings off, put them in a big heap. Remember, there's two to three million people. And they made Aaron, Moses' brother, made a golden calf. And here's what's interesting about that. In their minds, they were still thinking they were worshiping the God who led them them out of Egypt. But they were just doing it in a form of an idol or icon or something that they can touch and feel and see. And they were probably taking cues from those around them. But when it says, and they got up to play, it means their worship turned into sexual immorality. That word play, they weren't playing checkers or soccer. They were having orgies. And when this happened, it's just amazing how their discontentment, when the the person that they're looking at is, you know, there probably is Moses was here, we have to you know, do what he says, but he's gone, and next thing you know, they're going hog wild. It's like spring break for college kids. (laughs) But it's interesting, he calls that idolatry. Idolatry always leads to sexual immorality. Isn't that interesting? So idolatry is just worshiping something other than the one true God. There are many ways we can do that. And if you look at especially pagan religions and false religions, you see they're filled with sexual immorality. Corinth was a place where they had temple prostitutes. And that was the way that they would worship their God. So in verse 8, he says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, And in one day, 23,000 fell. So what is that referring to? Well, Numbers 25. You may recall the story. There was a tribe from Moab, and their king was Balak. And he knew the children of Israel were coming. He heard the stories about their conquests and God being with them. And so he hired prophet, Balaam. And he said, hey, Balaam, I'm hiring you to curse those people, put a curse on them. And so Balaam went on a big ridge where he could see the children of Israel. He'd look down on the children of Israel, and they were set up in a camp. 
And you know that he would have seen the camp formation would have been in the shape of a cross. He would look down and he would try to curse them, but you know what happened? He blessed them. How would you feel if you're Balak hiring Balaam to curse them and he's blessing them? Hey, you're ripping me off. I'm hiring you to curse them and you're blessing them and say, I can't curse them. You know, if you're in Christ because of the cross, you can't be cursed because he took a curse for us. So he tried it again. He goes up on another ridge and he's trying to curse them. He blessed them. He tried it again. Couldn't curse them, but bless them. And then Balak is like, hey, if you can't put a cursing on them, I see this is not working here. I know what you can do. Those women that you have, those Moabite women, send them into the Israelites' camp. And those women have them invite the Israelite men to partake of their worship, which involves sexual immorality. And it worked. And the children of Israel became cursed, not because of something from the outside, but they're surrendering to the temptation and not following the will of God, but then following their own will. And it says here that 23,000 fell. But if you read the story in Numbers 25, it says something a little bit different, which is interesting. It says 24,000 fell. So you're like, well, that's kind of weird. But the key to that is here it says 23,000 fell in one day. So apparently 1,000 more fell the next day. So he's using all these as examples of the failures of the children of Israel to say, look, this is how you're using your liberties. This is how you're using your freedoms. And he's saying that it's so important to walk in obedience to the Lord, to walk by faith and consider how your actions may affect another person. Otherwise, you're going to be like the children of Israel and fail to apprehend the fullness of God's plan for your life. That's a tragedy. In verse 9, he says, Let us not tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Well, that's Numbers 21. What happened there? Well, another case of the children of Israel just, they're getting tired, and they, they, they blamed Moses and God, and they said, did, did you lead us all the way out here just to kill us? You remember how they got there, the miraculous deliverance, and then the miraculous provision, but they, they're just getting weak. They, it said they got discouraged. And because of that, then God allowed these snakes to go around and bite them and kill them. But he did have a provision. The provision was that this bronze serpent would be put up. And anyone who is bitten by the snake, if they would just look at the bronze serpent, uh, serpent, 
bronze is a metal of judgment. And the serpent, of course, is sin and evil and Satan. And if they would just look at it, they would be healed. They would live. They'd just look at it. And you know what? There were people that thought that was stupid and they wouldn't look at it. What happened to them? They died. All they had to do is look at it. But that was, uh, that was a picture of the cross, right? As the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man, Jesus, would be lifted up. And all who would believe in them would not perish but have eternal life. So all these things, or all these things in the Bible, all these things given to us, is just different ways that God is saying, believe in me, trust in me, have faith in me. And then in verse 10, he says, nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. So there are various examples of complaining and various examples of the destroyer or the death angel um, flying over and killing them. But that tells us about complaining. That tells us how offensive it is to God. Why is complaining so offensive to God? Because it, it means we're not content in what He's doing. And we're saying that God is not good when we complain. Have you ever thought about that? When we complain about our life as a believer, we are actually saying God's not good. God's not good to me. And so I would be very careful about that, about complaining. Instead, realize that God, even though we may be in a place in life that's hard or difficult that we don't like, praise Him. Thank Him. He might know something more than you and I. He might understand a bigger thing that he's doing than we do. And I'm saying that to myself too, because this was very convicting to me. In verse 11, it says, Now, all these things happened as examples, and they were written for our admonition. That's uh, instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So now this is amazing. So Paul is saying that the Old Testament is something, and, and for us now, the whole Bible, they're written for the purpose that we would read these things and we would learn from them and apply them in our life so our life will be well informed in the choices and the direction that we take and that our life would be blessed. Wouldn't it be great if we learned the easy way? Probably most of us learn the hard way. And that's unfortunate. I wish I didn't learn the hard way so much. But the point is, are we learning? And the best thing is to be able to read the Bible and be informed by the Bible of how we sh should live our life. And to look at the examples of what happens when we don't follow the Lord. 
And then look at the examples of what happens when we do follow the Lord and ask for strength and wisdom that God would lead us and guide us in his will. And you know, when we live by faith, it's amazing because you will start to see the parallels in the Bible with your own life. And your life will start to take shape and you, you read your Bible and you say, wow, it's starting to look like that. Wow, I, I see a parallel between God's working and the things going on in the Bible. It's amazing. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. That speaks to the arrogance that we would all have where we would think that we don't need God where we think I'm good where we would neglect the things that God has given us to fight the good fight to engage in the battle to live fruitfully and fully and successfully in the Lord and we would say no, I'm good. He says, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. That means when we're dependent on Him, all that we have read up to this point tells us that we must depend on Him in order to walk with Him. And then he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you such as common to man, but God is faithful. He's no doubt referring to all those examples in the Old Testament. And he's saying, you and I are going to face those same temptations. They're the same temptations that every single human being will Face every believer has always faced. And they're, they're written. We have a, a book that describes these things that we should find ourselves in. We just read all these different examples about not being content in the Lord, about complaining, about not depending on God, about sexual immorality, about all we just read all of these things. And he's saying. These are the same temptations you and I will face. They're common to man, but you have to know this. God is faithful. What does he mean when he says that? He means that we need to depend on God. He means the only way to see ourselves through is that we are dependent on God. And that was the lesson that he was trying to teach them in the promised land. I mean, in the wilderness, to depend on him. No matter the situation, no matter what it looks like, to always depend on Him. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So the Lord makes a way of escape. But we have to take it. So we will be, as we walk with the Lord, we will be faced with all sorts of testings and temptations. All of you, right now, I'm sure, are facing 
testing, facing difficulty, facing hardship, facing being overwhelmed, facing feeling like you're not going to make it, facing feeling like giving up, exhausted, can't go another step. And here he's telling you that's common to every believer. That makes me feel good. Because it makes me feel like I'm not the only one. And it lets me know that you are all also, we're all in this together. We're all going through this. And the only way out is to know that God is faithful and to trust in Him. And He will not allow a thing to come in our life that will overwhelm us. There's not one thing that is bigger than the grace of God in our life. Everything that's on our plate that we're facing right now is smaller than the grace of God. But like the children of Israel, not going into the promised land, they just looked at the enemy and did not look at the enemy in light of God. When you just look at your problem, difficulty, situation, and you don't look at it through the understanding of God, you will be overwhelmed. And maybe tonight the Lord is telling you, He is faithful. Keep going forward by faith because He will fight for you. The answer is not back there. The answer is through the valley of the shadow of death. And through that, God will forge our faith so that now we may be walking with the footmen, but He's preparing us to contend with the horses. He's preparing us to be men and women of God that possess the fullness of all that God has for us, that we would be complete and lacking in nothing, that we'd experience the power of God working in us and through us, that we wouldn't settle for anything less than all that God has for us. So don't shrink back, don't be afraid, only press forward in faith. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this example. I pray for our flock. I pray for this congregation and all those who are listening online. We pray, Lord, that now we put our eyes on you and whatever we're going through would be put in its proper perspective. May we move forward to the land flowing with milk and honey. May we not settle for the crumbs of the wilderness. May we not settle to live by our own will or our own way. But may we live by faith in the Son of God who has demonstrated over and over again His power over all that we face. You are faithful, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we didn't get very far tonight, but I told you it was very uh, packed. But God bless you guys. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.